Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at the LSE, and it's a very great pleasure to welcome all of you, our speakers, our chair, and the audience to the school for this evening's discussion of the work and legacy of Beatrice Webb and her quest for a fairer society. Uh, our main speaker tonight will be Michael Ward. Uh, Michael is a Smith Institute Research Fellow and the author of the document which underpins our event tonight, Beatrice Webb, Her Quest for a Fairer Society, A Hundred Years of the Minority Report. Uh, we're grateful to Michael for launching his work at the school tonight, and of course we're grateful to him and his colleagues at the Smith Institute for co-sponsoring this evening's event. Uh, for the school, of course, it's both fitting in a source of great pride and pleasure that we're here tonight to reflect on the continuing legacy of Beatrice and indeed Sidney Webb, two of the school's Fabian founders uh, way back in 1895, and the principal authors in 1909 of the Minority Report of the Royal Commission on the Poor Laws. Uh, typically, perhaps, this Minority Report, as Michael reminds us in his text, was almost as long at 716 pages as the Majority Report of the Royal Commission. And the webs were highly successful, perhaps as ever, in securing wide publication of their document by means of a discounted Fabian Society edition and through a commercial publisher. So very much in the modern LSE tradition of combining social activism and social entrepreneurship. Michael's report also reminds us that neither the webs uh, nor their then key research assistant and latterly successor, William Beveridge, himself a past director of the LSE, cared much for the phrase welfare state. Uh, they advocated rather more for forms of full employment and insurance that would provide people with a sense of social security, uh, something which seems to be in increasingly short supply today. Now, of course, I'm treading on the toes of our guests, uh, all of whom, unlike me, are experts in this area. So let me conclude then uh, by welcoming to LSE Paul Hackett, who will chair the event, and the three people who will respond to Michael. That's Jonathan Derbyshire, culture editor of the New Statesman, David Pearshow, a professor of social policy here at LSE, and there's a seat at the far side for him when he escapes the House of Commons, uh, Stephen Timms, the MP for East Ham. Uh, the plan is that Michael will speak for about 20 minutes, and then our respondents uh, will engage in a discussion around his talk, and then we'll open up for question and answer session. Um, at the end, uh, there will be a vote of thanks proposed by Richard Rawls, the chair of the Webb Memorial Trust. Uh, the event will be followed by a drinks reception just outside in the main atrium space to which you're all invited. Uh, now, without further ado, if I could just ask you please to turn off anything irritating, pages, mobile phones and the like, can I also once again welcome you very warmly to the school tonight and ask uh, Paul to do his part of the introduction before we ask Michael to give his talk. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, Stuart. Um, uh, my name is Paul Hackett. I'm the director of the Smith Institute, and uh, thank you very much for coming. And uh, can I say at the very beginning a, a very special thanks to the uh, Webb Memorial Trust and the New Statesman and the LSE. Uh, this is very much a unique uh, co-production, and I'd like to think of it very much as a family affair. 
Um, the LSE, as I'm sure you know, was founded by the famous uh, four Fabians, including uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb back in uh, 1895, uh, and the New Statesman was also founded by the Webbs in 1913, and of course the Webb Memorial Trust was founded in memory of Beatrice. In fact, uh, I was uh, doing a bit of Googling and looking that Harold Lasky and R.H. Tawney, two of the great minds at LSE, helped set up the Memorial Trust all those years ago. So this is very much a special occasion for us, uh, and we at the Smith Institute uh, would also like to think of ourselves at least as close friends of the, of the Webbs family. Certainly John Smith, the late John Smith, shared Beatrice's concerns about poverty and social justice. And uh, his legacy, like hers, I think, was about not just offering an analysis of the causes of poverty, but also providing uh, workable solutions. So we're carrying on that tradition, and we will be publishing uh, next month uh, with the Webb Memorial Trust a new report of ours on poverty in the UK, and if anyone's interested in that, then uh, please get in touch. Uh, but tonight we're here for four reasons. Uh, the first, we're here to launch our new booklet, which I hope you've all got a copy of. Um, um, this uh, is sponsored by the Web Memorial Trust, and, and I hope uh, you all enjoy uh, reading it. Michael's done a fantastic job in capturing, I think, the essence of Beatrice and the spirit of Edwardian Britain. Um, we're getting our money's worth tonight out of uh, Michael because the second reason we're here is to hear his talk and his thoughts on what was Beatrice Webb thinking and why should we still care, which you'll start in a minute. And the third reason for being here is to discuss uh, with you what Michael's got to say and you've already been introduced to our panel who will kick off that discussion. Um, and I suppose uh, the, uh, the final reason we're here uh, is to enjoy ourselves. So at 7.45, uh, when we finish, you're all invited to join us for drinks and something to eat in the atrium gallery, which is adjacent to the theatre room. Um, before we start, I have just one little point to tell you that uh, I think we're recording this event, LSE are recording this event, and they hope to have that on a podcast uh, live on the uh, LSE site at some point. So if anyone wants to see it again, then uh, please do so. Uh, okay, on that note, Michael, would you please kick us off with your presentation? Thank you. Thank you, Paul, and uh, ladies and gentlemen. Presently, there sailed into view, peddling vigorously, a small, beetle-like figure crouched over the handlebars of a bicycle made for two, and perched majestically behind him what appeared to be a large grey bird. That's how Kitty Muggeridge, a biographer of Beatrice Webb, describes her first encounter with her aunt, Beatrice. Beatrice's first biographer, Mary Agnes Hamilton, uh, came across her for the first time at the height of the Poor Law campaign, debating with her at the White City in Shepherd's Bush. And she wrote, she was magnificent in a great hat with ostrich feathers, and of course swept her audience with her moving picture of the morass of destitution. I thought her arguments a trifle on the unscrupulous side, but she was not only a far better speaker, but she had a better case, and it was not long before I saw it. I would like to thank the Webb Memorial Trustees and the Smith Institute for commissioning me to work on this subject. Tonight's launch event is taking place appropriately at LSE in association with the New Statesman. In her diary 75 years ago in September 1936, Beatrice wrote, in old age, it's one of the minor satisfactions of life to watch the success of your children, literal children or symbolic. The London School of Economics is undoubtedly our most famous one, but the New Statesman is also creditable. 
It is the most successful of the general weeklies, actually making a profit on its 25,000 readers. And I gather from a conversation beforehand, it still has 25,000 readers, <laughs> but it is harder to make. I hope they're not the same people. And it, 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 uh, it, uh, it's harder to make a profit on. Now, the publication we're launching tonight is about Beatrice's 1909 minority report on the poor law and its continuing impact on debates around the welfare state. I'm going to start with the story of the Minority Report and the campaign that followed it, and then go on to talk about one of those debates, the issue of the insurance or contributory principle. In October 1911, Sydney and Beatrice were in Japan and Korea on a round-the-world trip. By the time they left Britain in June, they already knew that their campaign in support of the Minority Report had been unsuccessful. The Poor Law wasn't finally abolished till 1948. The Poor Law with which the Webbs were concerned was essentially the new Poor Law of 1834, although its origins went back much earlier. In 1832, a Royal Commission was appointed to review the Poor Law, and in particular to restrict the use of outdoor relief, payments to poor people outside the workhouse. In their 1834 report, the Commission laid down three core principles which underpinned the subsequent legislation. First, the principle of less eligibility. The, the position of the poor person on relief shall not be made really or apparently so eligible as the situation of the independent labourer of the lowest class. And the report also said every penny that tends to render the condition of the pauper more eligible than that of the independent labourer is a bounty on indolence and vice. Then the workhouse test. All relief whatever to able-bodied people or their families, otherwise than in well-regulated workhouses, shall be declared unlawful and shall cease. And the third principle was there would be a central authority, a government department, which is what we would now call a quango, I think, with the power to make and enforce national regulations and to group parishes into poor law unions. This was the Poor Law Commission, which by the early 20th century had become the local government board. From their headquarters over the road from here in Somerset House, the commissioners set to work quickly, grouping parishes into unions and imposing new regulations in keeping with the new legislation. They quickly became unpopular, uh, earning the scorn of Dickens and Cobbett and many other writers. The new workhouses were dubbed the Bastilles. The commissioners were called the Three Bashors of Somerset House. Edward Thompson wrote of their regime that it was perhaps the most sustained attempt to impose an ideological dogma in defense of the evidence of human need in English history. There was no further major review of the poor law in the 19th century, although policy and practice, especially in the larger towns, drifted away from the pure principles of 1834. And indeed, the new poor law throughout its life failed to eliminate two of the things that had been most criticized by the Royal Commission, the general mixed workhouse and the provision of outdoor relief to the able-bodied. Just before leaving office in 1905, the Conservative Prime Minister, Arthur Balfour, appointed another Royal Commission and included Beatrice among its members. She was under no illusions as to the purpose of the inquiry. The local government board civil servants would propose some administrative changes, including probably the abolition of the boards of guardians. 
but we were also to recommend reversion to the principles of 1834 as regards policy. There were four senior civil servants on the commission and six leading members of the Charity Organisation Society, uh, the Society for Organising Charitable Relief and Repressing Mendicity, whose aim was described by one of its founders as decreasing not suffering but sin. There were also five poor law guardians, one of them George Lansbury, and representatives of the churches and a trade unionist. Beatrice saw the civil servants and the Charity Organisation Society members as a solid block in favour of a return to the principles of 1834. In her autobiography, she describes how in the 1880s she had first worked with the Charity Organisation Society and then broken with them, calling them my friend the enemy and referring to their self-complacent harshness of doctrine. She seems very quickly to have come to the view that she couldn't sign a unanimous report of the Commission. By the summer of 1906, she had launched her own research programme, funded by George Bernard Shaw's wife, Charlotte. By the following year, she was circulating her own draft report, at first to Commission members, then to ministers in the Liberal government, and to members of the Conservative opposition. That draft eventually became a substantial minority report, signed by Beatrice, by Lansbury, and by two other members. The majority, however, did not recommend a simple restoration of the status quo ante. Both reports recommended that the separate boards of guardians should be wound up and the service transferred to local government. The critical difference was, was this. Whereas the majority wanted the guardians subsumed under local authorities as distinct continuing public assistance authorities, the minority argued that the poor law should be broken up. Services for children should become part of the education service. Uh, services for the elderly grouped with other services for older people and health service integrated into a unified health service. Beatrice argued for the prevention of destitution rather than its relief. The second part of the report was concerned with unemployment. While both majority and minority argued for the establishment of a national network of labour exchanges, which the Liberal government was in fact already beginning to implement, the minority report went beyond this in arguing for a Ministry of Labour to organise the labour market so as to prevent or to minimise unemployment. Following the publication of the reports, in February 1909, Beatrice took what she later described as the plunge into propaganda. It is rather funny to start at my time of life, she was 51, on the warpath at the head of a contingent of young men and women. Offices were rented, telephones installed, staff engaged. Beatrice herself spoke at meetings all over the country. The young people included Rupert Brooke and Hugh Dalton, leafleting Cambridgeshire villages from the back of a cart, Clement Attlee in the office organising the meetings, and C.M. Lloyd, later the head of the LSE Department of Social Science, as an organiser. The campaign newsletter, The Crusade, evolved into the New Statesman. It was a prototype modern political campaign but it did not succeed. There was no legislation before the First World War to implement either the minority or the majority report. Instead, the government, as well as setting up labour exchanges, introduced the first national insurance scheme to cover sickness and unemployment for a restricted part of the labour force. The key ministers were David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill. The key civil servant, the young William Beveridge, the boy beverage, as Beatrice called him when she recommended him to Churchill. 
the president of the local government board, John Burns, was sidelined. The TUC and most of the Parliamentary Labour Party, including its leader, Ramsay MacDonald, an old antagonist of the Webbs, supported the insurance principle rather than the minority report. Up to the time of the Royal Commission, the Webbs had operated as highly effective cross-party political networkers. They mixed easily, constantly, with leading figures from the Conservative and Liberal front benches, entertaining with them, dining with them, staying at their country homes. As a political style, it had served them well in securing educational reforms from the Conservative government before 1905. They continued networking while the Royal Commission sat. But as the Poor Law campaign gathered strength, so the Webb's other links fell away. Beatrice confided to her diary in 1910, we have quite strangely been dropped by the more distinguished of our acquaintances and by the Liberal ministers in particular. I have never had so few invitations as this season. When they came back from their world tour, the Webbs moved quickly to wind up the national campaign. They began to campaign instead with the Fabian Society and the Independent Labour Party under the banner of the War on Poverty. The politics of the Salon became less important. During the First World War, Sydney became closer to the Labour leadership. Beatrice, however, was shocked and depressed by the war and had little public role. In 1917, however, she was put on a committee to uh, advise on post-war reconstruction, which recommended along the lines of the minority report. But this, like many other reforms, was shelved at the end of the war. There was no poor law legislation. One of the few reforms that was carried through was the extension of the pre-war unemployment insurance scheme, which had been restricted to a small number of the workforce uh, to cover virtually the whole working population. The war had absorbed much of the surplus labour. 1914-18, pauperism fell, wages rose, and the economy boomed. The boom lasted until late 1920. Unemployment had been running at 2%, by December 1920, it was nearly 8%. Throughout the interwar period, the level only fell below 10% for a very few short periods. The insurance system could not cope. Workers rapidly exhausted their entitlement to benefit. In many parts of the country, there was no realistic prospect of unemployed people finding new jobs. They were thrown back on the tender mercies of the guardians. But now, when the poor law guardians tried to enforce the principles of less eligibility in the workhouse test, they were met with organised resistance from ex-service organisations, from the unemployed workers' movement and the Communist Party. And Arin Bevan describes in In Place of Fear how the Tradiga guardians were locked in the workhouse for two days and nights by the unemployed. Wal Hannington describes many similar incidents. Governments resorted to one short-term expedient after another to patch up the system. On the one hand, putting extra funds into unemployment insurance. On the other hand, policing and regulating boards of guardians that paid what were perceived as generous or extravagant scales of relief. Limited change came in 1929, transferring the administration of the poor law to county councils without any reform of the services themselves. It was a cautious version of the majority report. There were still two overlapping sets of cash payments to unemployed people, poor relief now uh, rebranded public assistance coming from the rates, unemployment benefit from the national government. In the years before the Second World War, this changed with the creation of the National Assistance Board to re 
assume responsibility for what had been outdoor relief for unemployed people. Finally, 39 years after the Minority Report, after the deaths of both Beatrice and Sydney, the 1948 National Assistance Act declared that the existing poor law shall cease to have effect. Introducing the bill, an Arin Bevan, by now the Secretary of State, paid tribute to the contribution the Webbs had made. So much for the backstory. Why, a hundred years after the Minority Report and more than 60 years after the National Assistance Act, should we still care? The record remains contentious. Margaret Cole, writing in 1945, said the majority was report was so inadequate to 20th century problems as to be, to all intents and purposes, stillborn. In 1963, Eric Hobsbawm wrote of the entirely stillborn minority report of the Poor Law Commission. In 1910, John Burns, writing to another critic of the Webbs, H.G. Wells, wrote of the new helotry in the servile state run by the archivists of the School of Economics means a race of paupers in a groveling community run by uniformed prigs. Rely on me saving you from this plague. I tried to argue in the publication that the Minority Report is not a sacred text to be implemented to the letter. It's a document of its time, addressing the agenda and the debates of the early 20th century. Uh, reference has been made to its length, a substantial book of over 700 pages. David Marquand has described the Webb's books as learned, solid, and mostly indigestible. Uh, writing about another of their works, Industrial Democracy, Royden Harrison said there had been a pronounced tendency to genuflect before it rather than to respect it. And he talks of this or that preconceived and tendentious interpretation of what the webs really meant. I think the Minority Report is an extraordinarily sustained piece of polemical writing in the tradition of Dickens and Covey. It outlines in forensic detail all the shortcomings of the new poor law, how the general mixed workhouse had survived, how the poor law medical service was actually an inhibition on proper medical treatment for the poor. Beatrice saw also that services provided exclusively for the poor tend inexorably to become poor services. This insight, I think, gives us an important link to the modern poverty movement. As uh, Richard Titmus wrote in 1966, separate state systems for the poor operating in the context of powerful private welfare markets tend to become poor standard systems. Tonight I want to focus on one of the debates that I think is of con continuing importance. Contributory versus non-contributory benefits, the stubborn survival and strange renaissance of the contributory principle. This is the centenary year of national insurance. It was the insurance principle that famously dished the webs. Insurance was the point which divided the webs from Lloyd George, MacDonald, the TUC, and the leadership of the Parliamentary Labour Party. Now, the grounds upon which Beatrice opposed national insurance were very specific. She did not want to see the state, she wrote in the Minority Report, enter into competition for the workers' weekly pence with the friendly societies and trades unions. And she believed also that state-backed insurance would create an unconditional entitlement to benefit without any reciprocal obligations on the part of the recipient. 
This, after all, was the basis on which she objected to the way in which outdoor relief was administered under the poor law. Sidney was a bit more pragmatic. He thought if Parliament was prepared to vote all that money, you should let it go through and then change the details afterwards. Lloyd George's original limited 1911 insurance scheme, as extended in 1920, buckled under the strain of mass unemployment between the wars. Not enough had been paid in, while too many unemployed people were claiming. Beveridge's 1942 proposals restored the insurance principle to pride of place. One card, one stamp, all benefits. The plans were based on the assumption that governments would use their power to ensure full employment. That commitment was expressed in the Wartime Coalition's 1944 Employment White Paper. The government accept as one of their primary aims and responsibilities the maintenance of a high and stable level of employment after the war. But although full employment was maintained, it was clear by the end of the 1960s, if not before, that the beverage settlement had not finally eliminated want. I think there were three main reasons for this. In the first place, beverage was never fully implemented. Beveridge had proposed that benefit rates should aim at guaranteeing the minimum income necessary for subsistence. This did not happen. Although the new insurance-based state pension was set at such a level, it was not sufficiently uprated to keep pace with inflation. The other key benefits, the non-contributory family allowance, the contributory unemployment and sickness benefits, were neither set at the level Beveridge had advocated nor subsequently uprated. As Howard Glenister wrote in 2004, the cost of what Beveridge wanted to do was simply not acceptable to the Treasury then or subsequently. In trying to squeeze the package into an acceptable constraint, the integrity of the package fell apart. The second problem was that the world changed. Beveridge was based on assumptions about women's participation in the labour market that became increasingly unrealistic. As time passed, new legislation provided that women would be credited with contributions for periods when they'd been absent from paid work outside the home. And third, the scheme did not take adequate account of regional variations in housing costs. Beveridge attributed this problem to the failure to distribute industry and population and failure to provide housing accommodation according to needs. No scale of social insurance benefits free from objection can be framed while the failure continues. But the failure did continue. In addition, the insurance-based unemployment and sickness benefits, never completely unconditional, have become, and with the current welfare reform bill are becoming more, conditional. Interestingly, answering one of the points Beatrice had originally raised. All this had two consequences. First, the link between contributions paid and benefits receivable has been seriously eroded. This was described by John Hills in 2003, where he wrote, what we have is in fact a very weak contributory principle. Benefits mainly depend on the fact of having made contributions, but you can receive contributory benefits without having made contributions, and you can be ruled out of entitlement despite having made contributions. And second, 
and perhaps most important, because insurance benefits have not been adequate for subsistence, the safety net of means-tested discretionary benefits, national assistance, then supplementary benefit, then income support continued. A non-contributory top-up became a permanent feature. As Howard Glenster has said, the comprehensive post-war social insurance schemes never eliminated poverty or major dependence on the old public assistance tradition. And so we had the re-emergence of poverty as a political issue at the end of the 1960s, the critique of the record of the 1960s Wilson government by the Fabian Society and many in the LSE Social Administration Department. What was the Webb's alternative? In her later years, Beatrice doubted whether unemployment could be eliminated under capitalism. When Beveridge's report was published in December 1942, she said that it was, quote, based on what seems to me a radically false hypothesis, that it is consistent with the continued existence of the capitalist and the landlord as the ruling class. But the policy they developed before 1914, not only in the minority report, but also in Sydney's Fabian tract, The Necessary Basis of Society, in English poor law policy and elsewhere, was the national minimum a statutory minimum wage for those who could work, maintenance out of national taxation for those who could not, together with measures of compulsion, including training and labor colonies with reserve compulsory powers. Beatrice was no liberal on the issue of conditionality. Despite experience since Beveridge, there appears now to be overwhelming nostalgia and rising political support for the contributory principle. In the 2011 budget, the coalition announced that it favoured integrating the operation of income tax and national insurance contributions, but said in the same breath that government would maintain the contributory principle and will reflect this in any changes it brings forward. Even when universal credit is introduced, contributory benefits are to continue separately. The government state claimants recognize and strongly support the contributory principle, and the government believes it is right that people are able to access support after paying into the system. This consensus is not confined to the coalition government. Ed Miliband, Liam Byrne, and the authors of the Labour Purple book have all spoken out in support of the contributory principle. They have now been joined by the New Statesman, whose editorial for 3rd of October 2011 declares as David Lloyd George and William Beveridge both understood, the contributory principle is essential to maintain fairness and public support for the welfare state. Now, there are significant arguments in favor of restoring the centrality of the contributory principle. It renews the bargain between the citizen, the state, and the employer. It emphasizes the link between contribution and benefit, between paying in and receiving something for something. It rewards effort, and it is perceived to be fair. It is important to be clear about the purpose of restoring the contributory principle. Preventing poverty and rewarding effort are not necessarily the same thing, although both could be described as moral as well as political uh, objectives. If the contributory principle were to be reinstated at the heart of the welfare state, a new settlement would have to overcome the problems that have led to its erosion. The first of these is resources. 
the resources would have to be sufficient to pay benefits at the level originally envisaged by beverage. The non-contributory child benefit or its successor, as well as the insurance-based unemployment and sickness benefits and the state pension. Employees and employers' contributions and the government's own contribution would need to be set at levels which would sustain the benefits in real terms. If you don't do this, there is no escape from the safety net of means-tested benefits. Second, gender inequality need a new approach that treats men and women equally while maintaining the link between contributions and benefits. And third, housing costs. How can the continuing reality of regional variations in housing costs be accommodated within an insurance-based system? If the insurance principle is to be restored, this time it needs to be done properly. Above all, that means finding the money on a scale which no government since 1945 has been ready to provide. I do not underestimate the difficulty of doing this. I think it would be hard without a cross-party consensus, and I think such a consensus would itself be hard to achieve. But the alternative seems to me to be to abandon the pretense of insurance and to revert to a national minimum funded from general taxation backed up by appropriate conditions. And that is what Beatrice and Sidney Webb were arguing for a hundred years ago. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you very, very much, Michael. That was uh, very insightful. Um, and the discussion we're certainly going to have in the next uh, uh, 40 minutes is on uh, something for something, which is occupying the minds of politicians down the road in Westminster. But before we do that, we're going to have some responses from our, our panel guests. Uh, David Pearshow is going to lead us off with a few thoughts. David. Thank you. Uh, last year, a student uh, asked me if I had met the Webbs. Uh, I hadn't, uh, but for over 40 years I have worked in all of Beatrice Webb's uh, children, the LSE, the New Statesman and the Fabian Society, and I'm hugely in their debt. I echo Attlee's words when Beatrice and Sidney's ashes were reinterred in Westminster Abbey in 1947. He said, millions are living fuller and freer lives because of the work of Sidney and Beatrice Webb. Michael Ward's lecture and his study are admirable in highlighting the contribution of the Minority Report and pointing to issues that have not and will not go away because they're ine inevitable in any form of welfare provision. Those offering integrated universal solutions, Ian Duncan Smith is the latest, <coughs> should be treated with caution. Changes <coughs> may have advantages, but they have disadvantages too. Beatrice seemed fairly intent on producing a minority report, even though she also greatly influenced the majority report. Now, comparing the two, as a table in Michael's study helpfully does, the differences between the two do not seem so striking. Certainly, Beatrice wanted the complete abolition of the poor law, which had to wait a long time, and its institutions remained even longer. I remember in the 1950s being taken to a former workhouse, then an old people's home, where the paint was grey, the heating full on in summer, and a wheezy harmonium ground out abide with me so slowly that I worried not all would last until the final verse. <laughs> Having joined in the praise of Beatrice, I do want to probe beneath 
her saintly, sad and sublime face that you can see uh, in the study. Clearly she was human, or almost so. She put Sidney in the spare room because he snored. Uh, <laughs> Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, when summoned to dinner, did not dare ask her where the lavatory was and had to relieve himself in a timber yard when walking back alone from their house by the river to Downing Street. Some did not like her. The portrait by H.G. Wells in The New Machiavelli, written in 1911, is pretty hostile. She's portrayed as Altiora Bailey. I imagine Altiora was chosen as being a bit like superior. Uh, he wrote, Altiora Bailey was an altogether exceptional woman, an extraordinary mixture of qualities. But her soul was bony, and at the base of her was a vanity gaunt and greedy. The fact that the Webbs wrote five million words together should perhaps only be a cause of astonishment and admiration. But I find it rather presumptuous that they should think anyone would want to read ten volumes on English local government. <laughs> More seriously, and without wishing to spoil this centenary celebration, I want to ask what was Beatrice thinking in relation to two issues. In 1913, the Webbs, in a series in the New Statesman on what is socialism, wrote on the guardianship of the non-adult races. They wrote... Weaker races are, at least in respect of, of power to defend themselves, virtually in the position of children in the universe of grown men. And in such a position, the grown men have duties and responsibilities towards the children that they ought not to ignore. In comparison with the eight great powers of the world, the American Indians, the Pacific Islanders, the Malays, the Arabs, the Kafirs, the Negroes, and all the indigenous ha inhabitants of the Asiatic mainland, we should not ourselves uh, accept even the Chinese, are to put it plainly in capacity for self-government non-adult races. To treat most of the world's population as children who needed the care of the eight great powers of the world, who one year later started to kill each other on an unprecedented scale, suggests overweening arrogance. Such racism may have been common at the time, but it suggests to me that her conception of a fairer society, which he clearly did not extend to a fairer world, was one of social obligation towards essentially inferior beings. Bertrand Russell thought that she was rather contemptuous of democracy, and I think he was probably right. Twenty years later, Sidney's short and pretty undistinguished tenure as Secretary of State in the Colonial Office where he had started work 50 years earlier as a clerk, ended. The Webbs, in their, then in their 70s, turned to the Soviet Union. Their book, Soviet Communism, A New Civilization, with a question mark in the first edition, removed in the second edition, will not, I suspect, be the subject of a centenary celebration. But it was no passing pamphlet. It was two volumes running to over 1,200 pages that went into many editions and was widely circulated. They did not speak Russian, and they spent only three weeks in the Soviet Union. They relied largely on innumerable translated government documents. They were utterly duped. If only in terms of its research methods, it deserves denunciation. They went to the Ukraine during the famine of 1932-3 when writers now estimate that between 6 and 8 million people were killed or died. 
They chose to believe those who denied what was happening. Yet they were told the husband of Beatrice's niece, Kitty, Malcolm Muggeridge, was then the Guardian's Moscow correspondent who had been to the Ukraine and told her the famine was the most terrible thing he had ever witnessed. Beatrice accused him furiously of being taken in by anti-Soviet propaganda. The Webbs welcomed the liquidation of the Kulaks as a class, not literally, though that's what actually happened, and clearly thought the means justified the ends. Of those who expropriated the peasants' meagre food supplies, leaving millions to starve, they wrote, There seems to us no doubt that this peculiar stiffening of the local rural administration by a chosen army of zealous and specially instructed party members was remarkably effective. Indeed it was. The Webbs argued with obsequious casuistry that Stalin was not a dictator and that, quote, Stalin is now universally considered to, his, to have justified his leadership by success, end quote. So how does all this fit with the celebrated minority report? Certainly the Webbs achieved many good things, as Attlee said. I'm not seeking to suggest that Beatrice was a bad person, but she was a complicated and conflicted person. Norman Mackenzie, who edited their letters and Beatrice's diary, said they, quote, sought to end their own emotionally, I beg your pardon, sought to set their own emotionally troubled lives to rights by setting the socially troubled world to rights. They were managerial and techno technocratic collectivists who did not fit well with the messy ambiguities of social democracy. If I could put the last century together, I would trust John Smith before the webs any day. No doubt they thought they were doing thing, the right thing, but those so convinced of their rectitude and superiority are often dangerous people. Okay, Jonathan, uh, yeah. <laughs> another view. <coughs> um, I'd like to draw your attention to a minor violation of the Trains Descriptions Act. In um, Richard's introduction, he described all the members of the panel as experts. Um, that's true in all cases except mine. Um, I'm not an expert on, in social policy nor on the history of the welfare state. I'm here, as I think, as a representative of one of Beatrice Webb's progeny, namely the New Statesman. Um, so I'll, and partly because we've, we need to leave time for questions, I'm going to restrict my remarks to a couple of questions um, about the contributory principle and about what Beatrice Webb was thinking about that principle in particular. Um, as Michael suggested, the renewed interest in um, the insurance principle or the contributory principle speaks to a crisis of faith in the welfare state. Um, but the important question, it seems to me, is what kind of crisis that is. And it wasn't entirely clear from Michael's remarks, and perhaps he can, he can clarify this in his response, whether Michael thinks it was, it, the crisis is one simply of affordability or rather a crisis of ambition. Um, and to make that point a bit clearer, I'd like to read you something that Clement Attlee said in the House of Commons in 1946 um, <clears throat> as the post-war welfare state was in the process of being constructed. He said this, The question is asked, can we afford it? Supposing the answer is no, what does, what does that mean? 
It really means that the sum total of the goods produced and the services rendered by the people of this country is not sufficient to provide for all our people at all times, in sickness, in health, in youth and in age, the very modest standard of life that is represented in the National Insurance Bill. I cannot believe that our national productivity is so slow, that our willingness to work is so feeble, or that we can submit to the world that the masses of our people must be condemned to penury. So, Michael, my question is, um, it's a question to you and it's a question to Beatrice Webb, and you're going to have to speak on her, uh, her behalf <laughs> this evening. Her shade is speaking through you. Um, what sort of anxieties or worries were you expressing about the contributory principle? Were they purely pragmatic, or were they a worry about the, about the principle itself? And you seem to say two things about Beatrice Webb's position. One, she had what was a fundamentally pragmatic objection, that she worried that the state would interfere um, with the payments that workers were making to friendly societies and trade unions. Um, but it seemed to me there was a more fundamental worry lurking there under the surface, and that's a worry about a possible tension between the, uh, the contributory principle and the principle of universalism, um, which was absolutely central to the minority report. So I wonder whether I can leave that there and we can pick up that uh, question in, in discussion. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Right. Okay, well, we've got some time, so uh, we're still also waiting uh, for Stephen Timms, who does have a copy of, of Michael's uh, uh, um, presentation, so when he comes here, I'll bring him in to make some comments. But before we do that, Michael, do you want to just respond to our panellists um, briefly? I think, I think anybody who interests themselves in the webs has um, a, a challenge with what uh, David delicately called the, uh, the complexity and the, uh, the complicated and conflicted writing. I think there are probably very few people who would defend what the Webbs wrote about uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union. I don't think the easy defense that it was an aberration late in life, I don't think that's accurate at all. I think, I think you can trace continuities in their thought uh, throughout. Um, and I, I think the challenge is, well, the problem with researching or writing about the webs is this. There is a pile of biographies written by people who knew them, people who were in their family, people who'd worked with them over the years, written fairly accurately. Most of them are rather, um, both Margaret Cole and Mary Agnes Hamilton are a bit uh, evasive and apologetic about the, uh, the 1930s and the, uh, the Soviet Union period. There's then the, the evidence that you work from. I, I, I don't know. I think there must be very few historical figures who, for who, whose um, uh, our knowledge of them is so dominated by the materials they've left themselves. Uh, the huge volume of manuscript diaries, the four volumes of print diaries, the letters, uh, the two volumes of autobiography. Um, and, and these are documents that are used not only for the webs, they're used as very general sources for, uh, for, 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 for the rest of the period. So I think that the, 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 the challenge for anybody is, is to manage to write from a position of detachment, to say, here is good, important stuff that has influenced our debates on social policy, on trade unionism, on the labour market, but actually here is stuff 
that uh, and, and I completely agree with David the, the, the stuff about uh, peoples in, in developing countries and indeed some writers have suggested they border on uh, an interest in eugenics at, uh, at, 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 at certain points now looking at what Richard Over has recently written about the 1930s. Actually, there was a lot of rather complacent talk about eugenics across large sections of British society, which just stops after the Second World War. Nobody talks about it anymore. Nobody, nobody espouses it. But the webs were in that current of opinion. And I, I think the challenge is to make an honest and fearless assessment of the major contribution they, they made but to be ready to face up to the, the things that, that are very difficult about that record. Okay, Michael. Well, perfect timing, uh, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Timms, the Shadow Employment Minister, has, has joined us. As, you, as I said earlier on, you were on a three-line whip, so you were delayed. Um, we've covered everything from empire eugenics to uh, the contributory principle, uh, and you've seen uh, Michael's uh, speech. Just want, we're just saying a few words before we move into a question and answer session, Stephen. So I don't know whether you wanted to say anything, but I'd be glad to. Just a Thank few you. words I, would be great. I, I, um, I've just been voting against the government's economic very strategy. Good. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I apologise. Um, and Beatrice would have both been indeed, very pleased. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, I, I think Michael's written a great um, pamphlet, which I enjoyed reading very much. And I, I think the debate between Beatrice Webb and her firma, former employers in the Charity Organisation Society is a very interesting one. And speaking as someone who sort of takes a high view of the potential contribution of charities and faith groups to uh, dealing with poverty, um, I want to stand very firmly with Beatrice Webb on the central role of the state uh, in, in, in tackling this problem. Um, and I, I think it's a measure of her achievement that although, as Michael points out, you know, the, the minority report wasn't very quickly implemented, nevertheless, it was quite, as I understand it, quite quickly accepted that that, that argument, that the state's got the central role, and, you know, it was, a, I, I think, a very, very important uh, achievement and a, a long-lasting one. Um, I saw what Michael was going to say in introducing the discussion, particularly his comments about the contributory principle, which he mentioned has been raised. And can I just say a little bit about, about that? Because uh, Ed Miliband has talked uh, about, in his speech to the Labour Party conference, about a something-for-something something society. And uh, I, I think it's right to do that because there is very broad support for that way of organising the welfare system. It makes sense to people that if you put something in, you should be entitled to get something out. And, and Michael spelt out uh, clearly the gains from uh, that approach. Now, Beatrice Webb opposed it because she didn't want to undermine uh, the trade union schemes, but it's, you know, that, that objection now doesn't uh, apply. It seems to me what we, what we have is a system uh, where th there is uh, a, a, a taxpayer-funded uh, underpinning. That's been there for a long time now. There are contributory elements um, as well. And the question is, what should that balance be? And what Imdaband uh, is saying is that we ought to strengthen the contributory elements. The current government is substantially weakening the contributory elements, in particular in time-limiting contributory employment and support allowance for people who've, who've lost their jobs through ill health to a year. That's a drastic um, uh, 
curtailment of the current application of the contributory principle. Michael makes the point that it, is, it would be very expensive to move to a wholly contributory-based system, and that's right. But there are things that you can do to strengthen the contributory character of uh, the, the system, some of which don't necessarily cost a huge amount of money. I mean, you could, for example, look at taking account of contributions in decisions about the allocation of council housing. Uh, that's uh, a, a possibility. There's been the suggestion that, um, that there should be a, a kind of salary-related uh, job seekers allowance contributory payment on the basis that once you got back into work you'd pay the additional uh, amount back. So I think there are ways of strengthening the contributory uh, principle which, which aren't necessarily unaffordable but which do move us in, in, in a direction which is, is right uh, and, and, and fairer um, and which resonates with how people feel the welfare system ought to be working. Very good. Now, listen, we've got 20 minutes, so I think we want to get into some questions because you've all been very, very patient. Um, so can you just say uh, who you are and keep your question as brief as possible? Um, volunteers, please. <laughs> Yeah, oh, sorry, I couldn't see. Yes, yeah. Uh, Ronald Dorr, Erstwell from the uh, CEP. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Stephen uh, would advocate as a means of making contributions the revival of some kind of national service in the form of youth service. I mean, this is something which in Tea Party America is totally unthinkable. But it's still possible to think of it in a coalition Britain. And I wonder whether if anybody made such a proposal, he would support it. Because the mere reduction from your salary of an NHS contribution means nothing to the person who, who pays it. But the assumption that everybody at some point in his life devote six months or a year or whatever to national service would actually mean something. Okay, Stephen, I think, I think that one's aimed at you. Um, well, <laughs> I, I mean, in the last uh, government, we uh, looked at uh, the pr promotion and encouraging, encouragement of, of volunteering. The V programme, for example, I think was quite a... Uh, an important uh, initiative. I mean, I'm not quite sure what model you're proposing. Would this be a sort of compulsory thing, which one yes. would be required yes, the compulsory thing. to do? Well, I, 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 I think that would probably cause some difficulties, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I would hesitate. Yes. I would hesitate. But you know, I think I think what we certainly should be doing is <coughs> encouraging. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, more than encouraging uh, contributions of that kind made at different points through people's lives. And you know, one of the points that Ed, Ed Miliband was developing uh, at the Labour Party conference was uh, about responsibility, about rewarding responsibility. And, I, you know, there may well be ways of rewarding people who contribute in the way that you're suggesting. I, I'd, I'd want to stop short of making it mandatory. Okay, okay. 
Um, yes, there's a few hands now. Yes, lay it down there. There's a microphone, if you want it. There's a microphone. Oh, probably not. Um, you referenced 43 Elizabeth in the pamphlet, um, and it seems to me, looking at the progression of uh, benefits, that there's still remnants of the deserving and undeserving poor in not having a universal benefit system, that there are eligibility and means tests which are not always particularly transparent and that people can be reclassified as undeserving poor, having actually for the previous 20 years put contributions in which they are then deemed ineligible to take out and that the current government are continuing with this and in fact strengthening this quite explicitly uh, the idea of deserving and undeserving benefit recipients is by moving to a universal benefit system a way of curtailing that unfortunate intervention from the state which may not in fact be genuine and fair if you've contributed for 20 years and are then considered to be ineligible to retrieve those contributions. Very good, very good. Let's take a few. Yes. I understand the appeal politically. Sorry, I'm Naomi Eisenstadt. I'm a retired civil servant. Um, an old bureaucrat, actually. Um, I understand from all the panel the issues about the contributory uh, principle, and I understand the appeal of it. What concerns me is twofold. One is that, you know, so how destitute do you allow children to become when their parents don't contribute? And the other factor in terms of how destitute do you allow children to become is that, of course, when children are the youngest is when their parents are the poorest, when you've contributed the least. So it's and when you need the most money. And the evidence from Jane Wolfogel and Paul Gregg's work that when the government did actually do huge cash transfers, poor people did spend it disproportionately on their children. Okay, very good. Let's take yes, gentleman over there. Um, Dave Clements, I'm organising a debate on the role of the charity sector um, at the end of the month at the Battle of Ideas. Um, my question doesn't necessarily relate to the, to the charity sector, but I, I'm interested in the panel's views on the legacy of uh, Beatrice Webb and, and others involved in that whole uh, welfare movement and the creation of the welfare state. Because on the one hand, the political class of the time seemed to be um, very confident in their ability to solve society's problems through the state, um, which compares very favourably to today's political class, I think, who seem to be very, um, uh, that they tend not to believe that that's possible and that problems are much more, um, uh, you know, there's a, a real sense of pessimism, I think, um, about the, the ability of the, the political class to solve people's problems. Very good, the role of the state's very good. Um, gentleman there. Hello, my name is Kostel Patachar, I'm a PhD student at uh, Cass Business School. I've got two questions, one for Mr. Michael Watt. Um, when the Webs were talking about the welfare state, did they look at mainland Europe, like the Prussian welfare state, which was pretty well developed? Did it influence their thinking? And my second question is for Professor David Pichard. You had mentioned uh, the movement away from a very technocratic class of state planners towards a more social democratic model. And uh, the Webs' ideas were very much uh, in vogue in Indian policy planning. When there was a saying there was an empty chair with Professor Lasky's ghost in every planning commission meeting. Now we find a problem that in a more social democratic setup, you have a multi-stakeholder approach. 
and you have some of these very large capitalist or business houses and how do you regulate them because the technocratic model was not necessarily the best but it had a certain paradigm a certain approach how do you regulate and we find a whole series of scams which only shows that regulation in a more multi-stakeholder social democratic form is not working thank Very you good. Uh, one more yes gentleman on the, on the end Hi, John Hitchin. Um, just interested in uh, a number of comments that were made around the, um, the contributory principle and whether that would be palatable and whether people like that more, um, particularly Stephen Timms was implying that was um, some of the motivations from Ed Miliband's speech. And I just wondered whether it, that is more about contributory or whether that is about hypothecated taxes and people actually are more interested in that. And I'd just be interested in whether that is more what people are motivated by. Okay, very good. Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll take some responses. Um, Michael. Um, uh, three points. The first is, uh, in answer to the question just now, uh, continental Europe, there were great trips over to, um, over to Germany to look at the Bismarck system. Um, uh, Sydney, although he didn't grow up in a very affluent surrounding, his mother paid for him to go and study in France and Germany, and he came back with good languages, which stood him in very good state for the future. So they organized one trip after another. Beveridge went to look, the TUC went to look, Lloyd George went to look. The impact of uh, Bismarck in German uh, insurance was one of the key elements in all this. Secondly, I, I want to try and draw together what um, Jonathan said, and. Uh, Naomi's question from the floor and Stephen from the panel. Jonathan raised the issue uh, uh, in relation to the contributory principle I talked very much about affordability. Was there also an, an issue of ambition? Yes, I think that's very important, but I think the real crisis <laughs> that um, uh, certainly the Labour people are talking about. The real crisis, and it, it, whatever conclusion you reach, it is a very important one, is about the legitimacy of the welfare state. Um, the, is whether, and, and again it's words that Ed Miliband used, and I, I have to say bef before I heard what Ed Miliband was going to say, I was going to go much more discursively through a whole range of issues as spelt out in the pamphlet, and I thought really we must talk about the contributory principle because that is, that is at the heart of the, of the current debate. And it seems to me some of the current stress on the uh, contributory principle is about restoring the legitimacy, restoring the idea that it's for the mass of the people, that it is a fair system, and so on. The problem is the contributory system has been eroded in two ways. First, because the benefits are inadequate, you've got this huge uh, means-tested thing on the side. And secondly, you've got the erosion of uh, entitlement by a series of conditions, and uh, Stephen referred to the, uh, the most recent of those. I don't think there's an easy or happy solution. What I do think, and, and it's not easy, and it's long-term, and it's not popular, for every breath that people put into defending the morality of the contributory system, you must talk about redistributive taxation, because in the long run there's no other show in, 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 in town. I don't underestimate the difficulties, I know all the views about the elections that are lost on, but actually it seems to me if you're concerned about social welfare, that's territory you can't afford to pass up. I'll leave it at that for now. I can fill another pamphlet coming, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> uh, over to you, gentlemen. 
Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think my question was more about the, the normative principle of, uh, underlying, <coughs> underlying the contributory, contributory principle. And I, don't, I don't deny the really quite drastic, yeah. serious problems that you, you identified. Um, no, I, mean, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the fact, the reason people are talking about the contributory principle is um, there is a crisis of faith in the welfare state. I love the equation yeah. used. Um, I think that's absolutely right. <coughs> and, and that was the spirit of that period. Yeah. And I, I think I share Stephen's misgivings about the suggestion about national service, but that question is, sim is symptomatic of that crisis of faith and the idea of um, universal welfare institutions that are expressive of um, common citizenship. Uh, and universal welfare rights as, for, as part of what it, what, it is to be, what it is to be a citizen. Very good. David. Uh, a couple of things about contributory benefits and the role of the state. I, th I think there's been a lot of discussion about contributory principle, but, but it, it seems to me that, that, that that's a kind of subset of a much wider question about people's understanding um, of what taxes and contributions do, what they pay for, and uh, their, their, their acceptance, um, which really doesn't seem very high at the moment, of uh, the beneficial role that government very largely pays, plays, that, uh, that, that, that this sort of popular myth that all politicians are the same and that most of them are crooks, um, is it, and, and, and satirists, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm rather with Martin Kettle on this, and I'm sure I would have been with the, with the webs, they would have agreed, that, uh, that the constant undermining of anything the government does and making it a form of sort of joke is actually very um, uh, undermining of efforts to improve society. Um, so, so the challenge uh, for anyone on the left anywhere of, of, of trying to um, get a, a wider understanding of, 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 of what's being achieved, what, what taxes are paying for, really seems to me absolutely fundamental and, and it's one that I think the webs would have uh, entirely endorsed. Um, uh, I mean it was, it was, it was slight, I, I mean I really appreciated the picture of these handcarts being pushed through Cambridge villages by Rupert Brooke um, trying to tell people about the minority report. Um, I'm not, well perhaps uh, the shadow cabinet should get out the handcarts and start pushing but um, I'm not sure that's a very effective way in the modern age. Um, uh, but, but, but that was, as I've tried to suggest, that seemed to be a sort of slightly brief um, period of um, uh, actually um, mixing with the people that in, in, in Beatrice's uh, uh, life. Uh, most of the time she was uh, somewhat removed from it. Just in relation to the question about uh, economic planning and uh, the ghost of Lasky, I mean, the, f the simple fact is that uh, the gr economic growth rate, uh, the question knows far more than I do, but the economic growth rate in, in, in India has gone up um, by leaps and bounds since a lot of that economic planning uh, system was, 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 was rolled back. The challenge seems to me... Uh, uh, well, and, 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 and we've got the examples of Russia and India where, where the, 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 the problem seems to me that, that, that inequalities rising in both places are very, very alarmingly and rapidly. So, so the, the challenge is how to regulate that uh, and make it fair. And that, that seems to me 
the Webbs thought that, 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 that the Soviet Union had cracked all that uh, um, uh, and I fear it was them who were more cracked um, but the, 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 the challenge of how to regulate and make a growing dynamic uh, economy fairer does seem to me one that John Smith was addressing that uh, there was a rather a lull um, under uh, New Labour in thinking that was a, a problem but ho happily I think Ed Miliband uh, is, 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 is back on what seems to me the central issue of uh, centre-left social democratic politics. Stephen, you've been on the quest for a fairer society for quite some time. Mm. Can I start with the, the question of the charity sector? Because uh, the government's recently introduced this work programme, started in, in June, where the model is, if you're out of work, you're looked after by the job centre for the first year, then you're referred to a provider who will be able to pull in specialist support from charity, third sector, typically voluntary uh, organisations. And I, I actually think that's quite an attractive model in principle for uh, taking advantage of resources and expertise that the charitable sector has. The problem is, um, and uh, there's a study just been published on, on this, that quite a lot of the charities who signed up contracts to do this certainly in London, I think probably outside London as well, but the, the survey is about London, mm. have had not one single person referred to them since all this started in, in June. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's, it's the practicality of making that work, which at least as far as this new work programme uh, is concerned, is, is just not delivering. So the model, I think, is, is, is quite an attractive one, but it's, it's got to be made to, to work. And you know, clearly, charitable organisations are not... The one I was speaking to yesterday was expecting £150,000 of revenue from this source in the current mm -hmm. financial year. They now expect, if they're lucky, they'll get three or £4,000. Uh, on the contributory principle, I, d I, don't think, I don't think the attraction is about hypothecation rather than the contributor. I think the notion that if you put something in, you should be able to expect to get something out is, is one that makes sense to people. You know, if you're, if you're working for a long time, you're hit by ill health, then you should be able to expect the, the system to support you. Uh, that is one, I think, that, uh, that makes sense to people and that people are in favour of. You know, the, the, this re reduction of, to a year of contributory employment and support allowance does mean that quite a lot of people who are halfway, who, who get cancer, uh, have to give up work, halfway through their treatment will suddenly find their benefit stops. And, I, you know, I think a lot of people will feel that that is just wrong. Uh, that uh, people who've, who've contributed over uh, their, their work working lives should be able to expect the system to support them through that kind of uh, experience. I do think this is uh, partly about restoring legitimacy to the system. Um, I don't think we will solve child poverty solely on the basis of the contributory principle, but I think, you know, alongside other things, I think the contributory principle, I think there is scope for strengthening the contributory principle. And just, um, I, uh, David made the point about hand carts being wheeled through Cambridgeshire. The, the thing that particularly intrigued me in the pamphlet was uh, Winston Churchill expressing mm. the view that, that, um, that the state ought to be the employer of last resort for people. I think just over 100 years ago, 
um, he uh, he said that well I, you know I'd be very interested to uh, uh, debate that idea with his uh, his party successors uh, today because um, you know I think there is a role for the system in in offering some kind of guarantee to people that they will in the end get get a job. Very good. Now it's gone very quick and we haven't got any time left, but uh, we will be continuing this discussion uh, uh, at the drinks reception in the atrium adjacent to this theatre. Before we finish, I just wanted to ask uh, the chair of the Web Memorial Trust, Richard Ross, to just say a final word of thanks, Richard. I'm sure everyone's keen to grab a drink, so I'll be, I'll be brief. Just to put today's discussion in context, uh, Michael's book and this event have really arisen as an added extra to a project that we initiated a few years ago in the period leading up to the centenary of the Webb's 1909 report. Uh, as trustees, we were interested in the question, what would the Webb's be proposing now to address poverty in the UK? Uh, at, at the time we put that question, poverty was of some concern in government circles, particularly child poverty, but it wasn't a topic that attracted much public interest or debate. It certainly didn't hit any headlines. Uh, it feels very different now, uh, with the impact of the recession hitting the poorest households hardest, uh, and the wide coverage, for example, of yesterday's uh, projections by the Institute of Fiscal Studies about the likely increase in poverty over the next 10 years, all of which makes Michael's report and today's discussion highly, highly topical. So thank you to all of the panel today for giving up your time and providing such expert insights into the questions raised, including all the downsides of this emotionally troubled couple. Uh, thank you uh, particularly to Michael and the Smith Institute for the book and presentation. I think it's a brilliant dissection of Beatrice's work and it shows just how important her contribution was to the development of the welfare state and how important the, uh, the, the, the questions that she raised are to the current challenges that we face. But it's also much more than that. It really brings Beatrice's character to life. She must have been quite terrifying. Um, but finally, please uh, spare a thought for Sidney, stuck in your spare bedroom. Um, he may not have been as vocal as Beatrice, he probably couldn't get a word in, um, but he contributed immensely to the web's writing and thinking, and of course he co-wrote the, uh, the Minority Report with Beatrice. So on that note, thank you to LSE uh, for hosting this event. Thank you to all the organisers from the Smith Institute, uh, particularly Nicola, uh, and thank you again to, to all of our speakers, to, to Paul for chairing the event, uh, and to the panel, and for all the contributions from the audience. Have an enjoyable evening. <laughs>